0: I and nine and a and and a nine and I, and 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 <laughs> na I am bum start I am that because that's key. am
1: bum I am bum 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 I it mitzio and tetzay Torah from from Zion will emerge Torah. And recently in celebrating some of our VBM upcoming programs, a bunch of scholars uh, in in various locations said, ki me Arizona tetzay Torah, right? That that the Torah is gonna flow from Arizona nationally and internationally. So that was a, (laughs) that's a cool moment. So um, welcome, shalom, shalom, nice to see you all. Hope everyone is doing well today. And if we're not doing well yet today, that we can use this hour together to be doing even better, to engage in some Torah. One of the great things about Torah learning is that we can immerse in it. We can immerse in it. We're going to come back to this this idea of immersing in ideas. Okay, so let's, let's jump right in. Last time I got carried away a little bit. We're now more than halfway. We're past the halfway mark through our series, Exploring the Malachot. And here we explore the 20th Malacha called Potseya, which involves detaching the cloth from the loom once the weaving is complete. The halakha concern leading to categorizing this activity as a malacha is that by unweaving threads or separating them, threads from a garment will be used for a constructive purpose, such as the action to reweave torn material. For Rashi, this is about removing excess threads from a garment. For many, this malacha could be described as perfecting a woven cloth. There's a trend among some people, primarily, but not exclusively, younger people, to want to wear garments that look used, hats that are torn on the brim, ripped jeans, and clothes that are clearly secondhand. (laughs) This aesthetic can appear rather strange to the significant majority of people who prefer to wear clothes that look well-kept and new. For most, if a garment has a loose thread, they would cut it off, and if there was a rip, they would get rid of the garment or sew it up. Ripped clothes are viewed by many people as unprofessional and sloppy. Of course, in Jewish thought, torn garments represent mourning, one rips their shirt, for example, upon seeing the Kotel, the Western Wall, or upon hearing of the death of one's family member or teacher. One undoes the wholeness. One shows externally the grief they feel internally. Now, actually, just as a side note, um, I'm reflecting upon a time I was in Senegal with American Jewish World Service. We were volunteering uh, doing some service work, and I jumped onto a boat and my shoe caught uh, and tore. My shoe ripped as I jumped onto this boat, and a little eight-year-old boy named Mamadou, Mamadou, and um, translates to Muhammad, uh, Mamadou followed me, and he started talking to me and begging me to repair my shoe. I said, no, no, I'm just fine, really, I'm just fine, and uh, he insisted. I wanted to repair my shoe, and, um, and then he repaired my shoe, and I gave him some money, and uh, And we started to speak in French. I used to live in France, so I speak some French. And I spoke with Mamadou, and he explained that his family, his parents were sick, and they all live in a little hut in this village. And uh, they made money by Mamadou going out and and fixing the shoes of Westerners. So I was uh, a part of this group that said, if your clothes are torn, you get rid of them, right? Maybe if it's a small tear, you get it fixed. Um and so uh we want clothes that look new. We want things that look well kept. And then there's this subversive is too strong, but this uh popular trend um to want to countercultural trend, which has, you know, lasted a while now, like in this image, to wear things that are are you know even in the store intentionally ripped in advance, or you are kids who will? I remember as a teenager buying a visor or a hat and intentionally ripping ripping parts off of it, right? Um, and so uh, and so for Mama du, um uh he didn't understand this idea of uh, shoes being disposable. Like you get a pair of shoes, you do everything you can to keep them for your life until they don't fit you. Whatever the case is. Actually, the Kutskarebi, I think it was the Kutskarebi, who uh, would would uh, wrap up shoes before throwing them away, um, um, you know, as a sign of of gratitude. I- I've actually taken on that practice that you don't just put shoes in the garbage. Like, wow, you walked in the world in those things, right? They're not holy, but. Th- some gratitude, you wrap it, you wrap it like a burial into the garbage, like in, in a bag or whatever the case is, in any case. Um, but that's not how we think of objects in a, typically in American society, that they're disposable and um, and valueless once they're of no value to me. On Shabbat, as we have said, we want to pretend as though the world is whole and perfect, so that our vision of utopia carries us through the other six days of the week. When we stare the brokenness in the face and do all we can to fix it. So why wouldn't we want to pull that final thread out on Shabbat so that our shirt can look perfect also, right, in the realm of ideas? Here we are reminded to live in the gray paradox that confronts us with a world that is imperfect and totally perfect at the same time, whole and broken. We are wearing a garment and we see a final imperfection. It reminds us to return to that spiritual paradox where, like our shirt, the whole is complete and good, and also there is work to do. We look at the thread and just let it be as we remember that this is not our time to work, but to reflect on the work, to step back and be renewed. It's actually a great spiritual practice for those of you who um, are, are also identify with perfectionism that how your how your home looks how your office looks how your work looks to be able to look at something broken and be okay with it we can lose focus on the goal we can take our eyes off the prize at a wedding we know why we married someone hopefully hopefully standing under the chuppah we know why we married someone on day one of a job we know why we accepted that job hopefully we know why we accepted the job on day one at the start of a campaign our energy is fresh but then, in all cases, can lose focus. We can forget that clarity. The Jewish people stood at Sinai and knew what was at stake for the future. But then we drift away. In the lead up to and right after the Six-Day War in 1967, the Jewish people knew what it was like to suffer a Holocaust and to look national destruction by war in the eyes. The existence of Israel itself was on the brink. But decades later, we forget those risks and those miracles. So, how can we return consistently to those moments of clarity? Right, return to the chuppah with those we are married to. Return to Sinai every Shavuot or every day. Return to the existential threats—not that they're so far away—for Klal Israel. Rav Shagar, you know, recently I've been quoting Rav Shagar a lot, um, and he is a—he uh, was a. Uh, postmodern uh, neo-Hasidic uh, rabbi in the West Bank. Um, actually, in, a, in a Ephrat, he was in Ephrat. He died all too young. He, he writes this in Zman Shel page 102. Zman Shel This is how God created man. Redemption comes upon him from the outside and imprints inside him powerful experiences that he longs to return to. The experiences give him a feel for what he is capable of attaining in his life. They place before him a summit that he will always aspire to return to and to reach. The longing for these experiences turns into a force that motivates one to move forward. And through the power of his inner work, he will be able to attain these experiences again. Okay, so let's unpack what Rav shigar is talking about here. So, what he's arguing, and we can give a, a counter narrative as well. What he's arguing here is that fundamental to human experience is that we long to return to these very special moments in our life, right? And to some degree, we're constantly structuring our life to return to them. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's funny, uh, and some of y'all who have children out of the home already can, can advise me. Um, I live every day with the fear of our children moving out of the home. <laughs> um, I'm sure when that happens, I'll be like, great, this is um, bittersweet. You know, now we can start a new stage of life as empty nesters. Um, and that's really sweet. And it's also bitter because now our children are gone out of the house. And I hear everyone talk about that. and So I have some awareness of, of how people are talking about the last child they're dropping off at college, you know, and what that looks like. And yet for me, it's pure trauma to think of like, you know these children not being in my in my care and under my roof um, and so um uh, and so i am, the way I imagine that stage of life is constantly trying to return to those moments um in consciousness or in holiday celebrations where we're all kind of reliving those moments of all being together. That's the, kind of one of the ways I relate to a family, or also when my mother and father, who are divorced but who come together with me. Um, or all of us um, and my brother for a Thanksgiving or the like, it's kind of reliving that past. So looking, looking upwards and not just downwards, not that it's so directional, but, um, and so too, an anniversary, a wedding anniversary, are we really celebrating 30 years of marriage or 50 years of marriage, or actually we're coming up on 10 in a few months, um, or are we, are we um, trying to get back to some past place? Um, and so, what's healthy about going back to the past, and what is actually um, has some level of denial of going back to the past? How do we think about going back to um, those those moments? Now, what Rav Shagar is talking about here is not about family. I, that was just my own little extension. He's dealing about spiritual clarity, spiritual connection. Rav Shagar is talking here that there are moments in our life when we were really robustly and rigorously engaged in seeking God, in learning Torah, in meditation, in, in hyper-connectedness. Um, and we then get caught in the hustle and bustle of life and can lose that focus. Um, and, um, uh, and how do we get back to it? How do we get back to it? For me, it's very true. Like I was a madman. I was a madman. I lived in a caravan on a hilltop, as I've shared before, for two years. I like, all day I was in the yeshiva from like six in the morning until 10 at night. And then I would go to my caravan and like, it was just books up to the walls of the caravans. I would just read and pray and study and and, um, and hear gunshots out the window because it was right, you know, in right in between Gush Etzion and, and Bethlehem. Um, and, you know, down there and and uh and it was really one of the most intense times and for a while i I wanted to just return to the clarity, the rigor I had there, the fervor and then I realized that there was an i don't want to call it an immaturity um, but actually i don't wish to return to that, that mindset anymore because it was it was um it was it was a different me, it was a different me, and yet there's something there certainly in my prayer life which was much more deeply connected than my potential for prayer now I mean I could stand in the Amidah for 20 minutes and be in the Amidah for 20 minutes where now I'm like helping kids with their food while I'm trying to say the Amidah and I rattle through it in three minutes and it's really just um, a different life in any case he says um the longing for those experiences turns into a force that motivates one to move forward, and through the power of this inner work, we'll be able to re- return to those inner experiences again. There's a continuity in our, in our spiritual climbing, that we can get back to that place and even even climb to a new place. And so, um, um, uh, and so, this is also true for our national experience. One of the ways we can tap into holidays is that they're primarily about returning to that spiritual consciousness of that historical moment, right? Yes, I know we talked today, Exodus means go fight injustice in the world. We should, we should think about the moment. We should think about the future. But also, can you go back to the feeling that you are a slave in a tribe and you are now leaving? That's the whole Seder. The whole Seder is trying to get us to relive, relive with the spiritual consciousness of that historical moment. What is it like to eat matzah because you're running so fast out of there, right? To drink the salty water, right? To taste these things, to experience them, right? In Sukkot, sleep in your sukkah, eat in your sukkah, because I want you to remember what it's like, even just for a week, what it's like. And so, yes, these mitzvot, spiritually, are about being present. These mitzvot are about looking forward and about the just world we want to build. But primarily, they are past looking. They are past-looking, and we are trying to tap back into that consciousness, right? And in fact, that is so much of what we're doing, right? That is so much of what we're doing. We're trying to get back to some place in life. Now, once again, this can be very unhealthy to try to go backwards, right? People who want to be younger, look younger, right? Deny where they are in their life stage in many ways. Um, and it can be very healthy and very and very holy and very meaningful, to allow oneself to not only be a grandmother, but be a granddaughter, right? To hold the consciousness of what it was like to be held by one's grandmother, even while one's a grand, uh, to be held as a granddaughter, even while one is now holding someone else as a grandmother, right? And what does it look like to hold the consciousness of having been, um, all these different things. Oh, I saw a great Torah recently. I, I wasn't even planning to say it, but on this point, it, someone said it in the name of the Alter Rebbe, but someone else said it in the name of the of the Mithla Um and there's different versions of this. But in any case, it comes from the from the Lubavitch world, and uh, and here's one version of it. There was a Rebbe who's doing Yechidis. Yechidis is when um, you go and have a one on one. You have a one on one with the with the Rebbe. And you pour your heart out, and then they give you their itza, they give their support, their chizuk, and their itza, uh, their advice. And so um, one day the rebbe met someone, and he, and then he locked himself in the office for three days after, and they, he wouldn't come out. And then his assistant said, "Why aren't you coming out?" And he said, um, "He said that um, he he found someone with a form of suffering." that he could not locate in himself. And and he could not advise that person or support that person until he located the same type of suffering in himself, which is to say that in his counseling, he viewed empathy as meaning, I need to find the experience you're talking about somewhere within myself so that I can actually not just be sympathetic or have pity or have compassion, but be empathetic. I can somewhere in my experience tap into what you're talking about so that I can truly be with you in that place. Wow. Wow. What a powerful way to think about empathy. Now, here's, the, here's a different version of the story that I saw, which is a little bit less modern because it talks about sin. Modern people don't like the word sin. Right. Sin is judgmental. It feels to Jews like it's Christian. In fact, it, sin is not a good translation of hate anyways. We generally say missing the mark rather than sin. Um, in any case, here, here's this other version of it. This is kind of a, it's a little bit grotesque, actually. Um, and this may be a different story or maybe the original story. This is of the Mittler Rebbe, that someone came to him and they would put, like a, going to a Catholic priest, they would confess not that he would forgive them, only God forgives in, in Judaism. Um, well, I mean, in, you know, in regards to ritual things. Um, but uh, they would kind of confess and, and, and he, would, he would relate on how they could do teshuvah, how they could repent. And one said uh, the night before he was supposed to marry a woman, she died and they buried her. And he unburied her and uh, in the translation I saw it said, had his way with her which is just completely um, uh, gross and strange. And, and the Rebbe locked himself in for three days because he said he couldn't advise anyone on their sin until he found that same sin within himself. And he could find nothing in him that related in any way to what this guy had done until after three days he found something ideologically abstractly similar to what this guy had done in relationship to death and abuse and whatever the case was. In any case, um, these two stories uh, are about not judging others. They're about the power of empathy, about the power of transcending the self to be in someone else's space. And, um, and, uh, and this is also what, uh, what Rav Shigar is talking about here. Um, The power of, of going inwards to, to be somewhere else other than we are. Now, we can't do this if we just run from TV show to TV show and meeting to meeting and podcast to podcast, and we never actually reflect about where we want to be. If we let the world control where we are in our mind, then we never actually go to where we need to be. And so this is one of the great challenges um, of self-transcendence, that the self actually becomes free, that we learn what has control over our mind and heart and actually return to those places where, where, we, where we can and should be. Uh, okay, I see a few things over here on the side. Let me just look at those before I go on. Ah, uh, good. Ah, uh, thank you for those. Actually, I remember, uh, oh, Yeah. I remember actually when my parents dropped me off for college, I remember crying, but uh, I cried even harder when my older brother got dropped off at college. That was like a real moment that I come back to in a lot of ways. Anyways, um, okay. We have to work hard to return to c to return to our wedding day, to return to those moments of great clarity. This work becomes all the more challenging where one's self is not merely one's personal belongings, one's personal memories, or one's own narrative. When someone reflects a more enlightened sense of self, that individual expands into a collective. Here's how Rabbi Shkopp writes this. Here's Rabbi Shkopp and Shara Yosher. I don't know... uh, Okay, here's what here's what he writes. I, I thought this was a really beautiful piece. Here he says, "We must try to clarify ourselves. The quality of one's self. What does it mean, by self? Because through this, th- through this, each man's worth is measured, each according to their level. One who one who is crude and unrefined, for their self is restricted to ma- material things and to their body. Above this is someone who feels that their self." is comprised of body and soul. Above this is someone who includes the member of their household, the members of their household, as a part of themselves. And the, and the one who follows the path of Torah, their self includes all the people of Israel, because really each Jew is like an organ that is part of the body of the people of Israel. And a complete person, it is good to embed in their soul and feel that all the words are their self. and And they... And and they are only a small organ inside all of creation, and then their love of themselves also helps them to love all the people of Israel and entire creation. Now, Rav Kook has a has a has a very similar piece that's very famous connected to this. But let's just unpack what Rav Shkop is saying here. When we talk about the self, he says, "Okay, the lowest level. If the self is is me, it's my stuff and my body. Myself is my house." It's my clothes. It's, my, it's what I see in the mirror. Then the expanded self says, okay, it's not just body and material existence. It's my soul also, right? It's this much deeper part of self. Then he says, oh, your family, right? Your family is a part of yourself. Then he goes, if you're really a Jew who feels connected to call Israel, the entire Jewish people is a part of the self. If one Jew is hurt, suffering, you feel that suffering too, right? Um, and then he goes beyond. It's all creation. Um, all of all of humanity, all of life, all of all of existence, as part of the self, right? Now, um, this can be explored on so many levels around identity, around theology, around ethics. This notion of the expanded self—it's actually um, it, one of the interesting ways to explore the notion of self—is through the question of reincarnation, right? It, to what degree is that new body? that new self actually still me, right? If it's a different body, if the memory is lost, if it's a new cognitive capacity, right? Um, Even if there's a soul that has carried over, to what degree is that me? What actually is the self in regards to um, uh, 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 eternity or, or various incarnations? Okay, so to move forward, how can one hold the consciousness of such an expanded sense of self? How does one work to renew and recharge one's memory of total connectedness? This is not easy, but we live in the middle spaces between remembering and forgetting, perfection and brokenness, connectedness and separation, woven and separating, agreeable unity and disagreement. We need the disagreements and the separation. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov writes, and I love that the only image we have for Rebbe Nachman is his chair, which you can see in the museum in Jerusalem, if you haven't seen it. Um, Rebbe Nachman's chair. There's a, here's what Rebbe Nachman of Breslov says. There's a quality to disagreement that relates to the creation of the world. The essence of the creation of the world comes about through the empty space. Without this empty space, everything would be one, endless unity. There would be no room for the creation of the world. Therefore, the light was withdrawn to the sides, creating an empty space. Out of this empty space, all of creation happens. So this is very interesting, this notion of Tsimsum, this notion of retraction of light and of presence to create an empty space where creation can happen. And in that separation, he's dealing with conflict and disagreement. That separation and disagreement creates a space in between. If there's only the unity and and agreement, there is no space in between, right? But that separation, that disagreement creates a new middle. There's a middle space that can be looked at, that can be experienced in a sense. Unity doesn't allow for creation. There needs to be tension, disagreement, and difference, right? I mean, um, another simple way to talk about that is, um, you know, that you need pain for growth, right? That muscle has to be broken down for muscle to grow stronger. Um, Or for learning to happen, there has to be cognitive dissonance. But so too in the relational space, you need this disagreement, this tension, this, uh, this difference. In the space, which is why when people talk about healing America, I think that what we're not talking about is doing away with disagreement and difference and different ideas. I think we're talking about doing away with nastiness. Doing away with toxicity, right um, Passionate disagreement shouldn't shouldn't go away um, th- th- that disagreement is 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 necessary in in that space that is created between the self and the other, the thesis and the antithesis, the argument and the counter argument there can be real creation. There is the perfect garment and the garment that has a dangling thread. there is the perfect life one dreams of and the life with that dangling thread that unravels the dream. This involves listening closely. The late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs writes, until Israelis and Palestinians are able to listen to each other, hear each other's anguish and anger, and make cognitive space for one another's hopes, there is no way forward. And so... Once there is that empty space that emerges from disagreements and conflict, then the question is, what do we do to bridge that divide? Now, just a, a little plug that due to our conversation last week, I am, in fact, going to do a class tomorrow morning on, on the intellectual legacy of Jonathan Sachs from 9.30 to 10.30 uh, Pacific, uh, Phoenix time. Um, 9.30 to 10.30, that's, uh, is that correct, AJ? 11.30 to 12.30 Eastern. I think that's the time, right? Um, and, uh, and that's not a Hespin. It's not a eulogy. So if you want only like praise, then there's a billion articles you can read, read that came out recently. This is not a, it's not a critique. I'm not offering a critique, but it's a class. I mean, we're going to learn. We're going to critique and, and engage. It's not, just a, it's not just a celebration of greatness, even though that, I'm sure that will emerge as well. Um, but it's understanding. It's, it's not about praising, but understanding. So in any case, that's going to be tomorrow. So, uh, but but, his, but we're touching now on this idea of dignity of difference, which we'll talk about as, tomorrow as well, this idea of, of uh, the value of difference, even within the unity. In any case, it is hard to be patient or toler- tolerant when confronted with pain or injustice. But the Hebrew word for both patience and tolerance is savlanut, which comes from lisbol, to suffer, To be tolerant of another with a different view and be patient for reconciliation means that the full truth is not within me. And it can be painful to realize that the whole truth is not within any one of us and that peace isn't possible at the moment. We suffer in our patience and tolerance, but it can be fruitful optimism, suffering in a sense. Sometimes the best and worst, the true and the false, the joyful and the painful, are not far apart. Sometimes they're right next to each other. Consider this midrash. This is from uh, Pesikta de Kahana. Rabbi Kahana. Why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu create both hell of Gehenna and the heaven of Gan Eden? In order that one may borrow room from the other. (laughs) And how much space is there separating them? The rabbi said they're right next to one another. Right, well, It's such a great rabbinic imagination that Gan Eden and Gehenna are right next to each other, right? How does Christian thought teach us? How does Hollywood teach us? Heaven is up there in the skies. Hell is down there in the fiery pits below. It's, it's above and it's below, right? Um, for obvious reasons in terms of human experience, the fiery pit you descend into, the heavenly celestial sky you ascend to, right? But how does the Midrash picture it? They're right next to each other right? They're right there. And why are they next to each other? So they could borrow space, right? It's it's, it's almost, it's almost, I wonder if they're telling a joke. Oh, hell's a little bit full today. Can we borrow a little space? Okay, we'll rent you out. We'll rent you out uh, 2000 square feet for half a million dollars. Okay. And then, oh, it's a good year. It's a good year. Heaven is bursting, right? We got to rent some space from Gehenna. We got to rent some space. We're going to clean it up a little bit, cool it down a little while, make it uh, take it out of Arizona and go up to Canada a little bit. So, you know, have some Canada winter, Canada winter, uh, you know, r- 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 right, Eileen? Uh, we're going to, oh, no, not not Eileen. You're down here in Arizona. Who's who's up there? Uh, who's up there in Canada over here? Uh, oh, she's not on here today. Okay, it's not on here today. But uh, uh, anyways, uh, so anyways, they're borrowing space from each other. But what's this idea? We think of opposites as far apart, but sometimes they're right next to each other. Those opposites are right next to each other. Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs can live right next to each other and sit down next to each other on the bus. Republicans and Democrats are found in the same family and next to each other at Thanksgiving or perhaps every Shabbat meal. The rich and the poor pass each other in the street. Similarly, some of our own internal truths or personal narratives are wrapped with little or big lies. What stories do we tell ourselves about ourselves? Which parts are crystal clear in truth? Which are completely nonsensical stories destroyed upon self-examination, only created as defense mechanisms? Right? Our very self truths and our very self lies interconnected right next to each other. Heaven and hell right there. We walk the streets wearing garments to look our best. We are hiding bodily imperfections with garments that are themselves imperfect. On Shabbat, we stop and we say, It's satisfactory. My body is not perfect. My clothes are not perfect. None of it is. We live in an olam sheker, a world of lies, with a lave nishbar, a broken heart. Starting to see that reality can be deeply empowering when we apply both humility and courage. We can emerge to a state of being comfortable with imperfection. And so, on Shabbat, the tablecloth has a loose thread. It's okay. Let's meditate on that loose thread and enjoy it. oh thank you Avi that Seinfeld episode yeah (laughs) oh yeah Lauren's in Toronto you're in Mesa yeah sorry I got confused Eileen okay please I would love to hear uh, I would love to hear comments questions agreements disagreements on any of this uh, stuff we've 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 uh, dabbled in
2: It seems to me that your emotional concern about your kids leaving home and going off on your own is something that you really don't need to worry about it. There's nothing you can do to prevent their going on with their lives. So the best thing is to rejoice in their ability to leave home and start their own life. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, right? Yes. Well, and and so yeah. Just before Carol, so Eileen, it's it's a great it's a great point, and I think, I you know I dabble in between two different frameworks, and you could tell me which one leans, which uh, speaks to you more. One of, one of framework of emotions is that um, human uh, human emotions are natural, and we should allow ourselves to experience them all, right? You we've heard many people give this idea very articulately. Allow yourself to be human and experience the fullness of life and the fullness of all emotions. The other approach from self-help teachers and and, uh, religious teachers and, and other types are that we should cultivate positivity, cultivate gratitude. We should lean in to positive emotions, right? We should move away from negative emotions, right? These are two different fundamental frameworks of how we think of emotional life. Allow it to be natural and just exist in it all and be conscious of it all and just um, it's all okay and good versus um, take control of your emotional life. Um, go to therapy, work through the negative stuff, try to remove it, try to move to the positive place, strive for happiness and for joy, and all this and that and so on as a thought experiment, thinking about this, I have two options: I can either reach a spiritual level where I say, "This is inevitable, I have no control over it it 's even good, and I should cultivate a positive outlook towards it or I can mourn the loss that comes with that parental role that I'm emerging now, which I will need to transition from, and be in the grief stages of all that, um, and hold on to the, those negative feelings and feel the joy at the same time. And so, uh, my uh, uh, you know, as usual, my answer is both. Yeah, we should feel but, it all and then move forward, right? But, but there's but I don't a know. time. How do I know?
2: There's a time for everything. To to quote a biblical passage, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, you know, I I um I I I, I love that passage about the totality of emotional life. You know, uh, Ecclesiastes, um, famous ma- made famous by who was it? John Lennon, is it John Lennon? Yeah. Know, who is it? Not John Lennon. It's uh who is it?
2: I'm the birds or something. The birds. No. The birds. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Na 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 na. Right. So, yeah, it's a very, very, and and so I, so I think about that a lot. And, um, and, and, and what it means to be immersed within a time period versus transcendent. If you look at, if you look at, um, okay, there's a lot more to say about that. But uh, Carol, let's go to you.
3: Um, I grew up with my grandparents, and uh, I was very um, exposed to old people, all my, as a child. And I would see old people pass away. They were, my grandparents were forever going to funerals. And uh, um, so um, I was afraid of death because I realized, you know, that this is uh, the end. I wouldn't see them again, whoever they were—not just my grandparents, but our friends and family. Yeah. So I was terribly afraid. Now I look back. I'm 75. I'm coming to the. I remember my grandmother at 75. That's about the time when I started to feel these feelings uh when they were that age and uh i'm not so afraid now so i think there is something in the human nature i don't know what Mm. you want to call it Mm. that prepares us At, at 10 years old i couldn't imagine dying at 75 i don't want to die but it's inevitable and it'll happen and it'll happen right so that's how I feel about your- Carol,
1: that's, yeah, that's so well said. That's so well said. Trust the process. Trust the pi- process of development, of aging, of change, because the process itself prepares you for that journey. Right? Yeah, that that, that really speaks uh, very deeply in me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and that speaks, That I think that speaks um, when there's not a rupture, right? When there's not a rupture in the narrative. Um, you know, when there is that continuity and that path, um, you know, a rupture looks like something like a Holocaust, right? A Holocaust or a displacement, refugee displacement or, or trauma such as potentially like divorce or, um, or early death, whatever the case is. But on the normal path, which is what we should probably put ourselves for, um, I, that speaks to me very well. So thank you, Carol, for that. Someone else?
4: Yes, hey, hey, Avi. Oh, I'm sorry. I think Barbara wanted to say something. She can go before me. You go oh. ahead.
1: Okay. Avi, so then Barbara, thank you.
4: I, I, um, I wanted to go back to something that we were speaking about during Parshas Noach, actually, the two of us, which was a very profound idea, very interesting. And that's something you mentioned here with Rav and Shkap. The idea is the tension between having an expanding circle of ethical consciousness and also that combined with the more important and more pressing concerning one has to value their own family, their own circle, their own religion, their own community. So I'm wondering if you could, could talk a little bit more about that in terms of how to balance that very difficult tension.
1: I love that, I love that so much. Um, you know, there's so many different frameworks to think about your great question. And um, and to, to enter it back into our framework, right? at, at what point do I buy new clothes Versus making sure the homeless and the poor have those, right? Um, at what point do I give more to my children, grandchildren, before I make sure foster kids uh, or other vulnerable children have what they need? Right? And this is an interesting question around holiday time, when we think about how much we spend on gifts um, and upon upon, um, And when do I have enough? When does my family have enough? When does the Jewish people have enough? Um, these are really big and difficult questions. When does humanity have um, that we can go on? And, um, and I really continue to, to not think about that as sequential, right? Um, once the need is met, we go on. Because as we know, the, the need is never met. If I waited for myself needs to be met to move on, I would never move on. Um, if I waited for my family's needs to move on, I would never move on. The Jewish people's needs, I would never move on. So, how do we hold um, those multiple needs at the same time, it, when it's so messy. And, uh, and I also think about this when they conflict, when they conflict. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know if this is controversial, what I'm going to say or not. I tend to fall out into the camp um, that um, we, should save, um, we should save evil people from death. Um, which is to say, if you're a paramedic, you don't judge who the person is. The, in Israel, the paramedic, you know, saves the terrorist, right? Um, other people would say, "Let them die," um, and and, uh, and 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 so too, um, I will fight for the rights of people who are anti-Semitic, right? Now that's kind of difficult, right? Like let's let's actually say it's not true. But let's say the entire Black Lives Matter movement was anti-Semitic, as some people claim this, which is not true, of course. But let's say that that claim was true. I would still stand for Black Lives, right? Because to use it kind of an intense analogy, um, uh, if my enemy is raped, like rape is still wrong, right? It doesn't matter if that woman is my enemy, like raping in uh, any woman is still wrong, regardless of her virtue or, or whoever she is. So, too... Um, racism is wrong, regardless of what views the racist, you know, of, of, of what views uh, the, the victim of racism holds. Uh, now, of course, that, that, that's not true. There is a middle ground, of course, there is a very high percentage of racism among people of uh, anti-Semitism among people of color in America. But that's a separate problem, the fact that we have to stand up against racism. And so, uh, and so too, what does it mean to say we should welcome Muslim refugees to this country Knowing that there'll be a disproportionate number of of anti-Semitic views held held by Muslim refugees. Now, I'm going to have to hold that complexity because I'm going to be pro-refugee, and I'm going to want to combat that anti-Semitism. I'm going to hope that assimilation to American culture is going to water down that brainwashing that <laughs> that happened. Um, you know, from from a sort of fundamentalist fundamentalistic Islam that they they may have been immersed in. Of course, once again, I don't want to paint all Muslim refugees as being anti-Semites. That's of course unfair and untrue. Um, but but if the percentages were correct. And so what do we do when it actually conflicts? What, is it, what do we do when it conflicts? And that's really hard to imagine on the familial level when it's not just about the Jewish people. Um, what does it mean to um, employ someone who kicked my kid? I mean, it's hard to even imagine the case. Maybe someone here can help. Me. But what does it mean when it conflicts when someone puts your family at risk? right, um, who then also is deserving of your uh, of your care. Uh, I'm sure someone can think of a case here. Do we really buy into the idea of the Jewish people as a family, right? I find that idea very inspiring, that we're not a community, we're a family. And so does that play out in the same kind of way? Um, you know, in an interesting, I know we're talking about Sachs tomorrow, but I recently heard him say uh, um, that uh, each each religion has its own, relationship to God in a way that each child has uh, an intimate relationship with a parent, right? If a parent has three daughters, those daughters can never understand uh, each other's relationship to their mother. Each daughter had a fundamentally different relationship with their mother. Right, they can they can joke and tell stories and pretend like they had the same mother, but really each daughter had a different mother, so to speak, in terms of their relationship. Um, and so too that each faith community has a different relationship to an intimate relationship to the Creator. And so, um, and so, uh, and so, what does it mean to protect our family while there's others? So too, this is where people claim a lack of loyalty. There are those who suggest that by donating to non-Jewish causes. Um, I uh, have a lack of love for the Jewish people because um, uh, because of the infinite needs that, that, that emerge there, um, and so this is very this is very complicated. Thankfully, it, it's normally not a conflict. Yes, we have limited time, limited resources, and all this and that, but in terms of the spiritual consciousness of us being connected, and there being an expanded sense of self, this is the great. Challenge that Judaism, I think, makes so clear. And I, and I'm sorry if I'm a broken record here, because I say this literally all the time. That, but our era, our modernity or post-modernity, wants us to assimilate into a oneness that lacks particularity, right? That's how you're accepted in today's, uh, in today's kind of version of multiculturalism. And, um, f- and fundamentalism wants us to immer- immerse purely. And, 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 and totally into particularity. And the Jewish message is to how to hold on to both of you. our particularity, our difference, and our commonalities. And this is here as well. In the self, I am me, and I am in a family, and I'm in a Jewish people, and I'm in the world. And those things uh, complement each other rather than conflict with each other. And that's going to take some work for each of us to figure out based upon where we, where we lie. But anyways, I already spoke too long there, Afi. I, I, I definitely didn't answer your question. The question is much stronger than the answer, but I began to kind of reflect on it. Hi, Vicki. Hi.
4: I just wanted to, I love the whole idea of connectedness and oneness as an ideal to aspire to. Um, I just wanted to throw out just a couple of thoughts. One was um, when we were talking about relationships between uh, Jews and Muslims, between Jews and Blacks, um, you do run into this issue of self-interest, uh, where what we're doing isn't entirely for the others, but we're doing it out of self-protection. That's right. Uh, which I think is a big part of our history, and yes. we come under attack for that. Yeah. Um, so that's something to—I don't know. I guess to struggle with as to why we do it. You know, giving to non-Jewish causes versus giving to Jewish causes. You know, are you giving it because you're getting something back for it? The second thing was this idea of the, of the ripped jeans. I don't know if anybody else thought this, but in some ways there's a sort of inauthenticity in it. If you think about people who wear ripped clothing or dirty clothing or old clothing because they don't have new clothing, and yet we have, you know, I'm guilty, my children are guilty of buying ripped jeans and paying a ridiculous amount of money for them so that I can look like I have ripped clothing somehow there's something
1: wrong with that picture, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK, Vicky. thank you for those. On your first point, you're absolutely right um, that, uh, and, to, and to take the case, which I'm sure you were partially pointing to over there. Hi, Andrea. Did you just join us? Hi, nice to see you again. Um, so um, which I, I'm sure you were pointing to there. Um, there was a lot of self-interest in American Jews being such a dominant presence in the civil rights movement. Right. And, um, we oftentimes point to it purely as the realm of values, right? Jews stand for justice, with Jews stand for anti Semitism, anti racism. That's why we were there, right? Of course, that's partially true. But the other part of the story is that at the very same moment, Jews were fighting for acceptance in American society, and we saw our fates intertwined. And we, 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 we um, gained an immense amount of social capital uh, by being at the forefront. Of, of, the, of the civil rights movement. Um, and so I'm a big fan of the Talmudic phrase, mitok shalolishma balishma, that when you, when you, which normally is translated as, when you start doing something for the wrong reason, you'll come to do it for the right reason. Don't worry about your reason yet, just do it. Just do the right thing. And as you're doing the right thing, you'll come to do it for the right reason. I, I, okay. Like if, don't worry about, you're doing a good thing just for ego. You want to donate $50,000 because you really want your name on the wall. Great, do it, right? Do the right thing. And don't worry about your, about your motivation. And your motivation will come along. It, it'll come to follow. That's the way it's normally translated. But the way that I translate it, shalolishma balishma, is that ba is not sequential, but concomitant. That is to say that uh, the less pure motives come alongside the same time as pure motives, which is to say that no one ever does any action for one reason, right? We always have multiple motives in uh, in human behavior, and pure motives, so to speak, um, it's not so clear that things are in the bucket of pure and impure, right? Um, there's various ways to identify our, our motives, but less uh, altruistic motives come alongside self-interested motives, and that's okay. That is human, right? Think about Think about, um, uh, uh, hmm. huh? Think about like loving, loving someone. Uh, it, I mean, it's so obvious that like we love them and we do something for them because we care about them. It's for them, but we also do it because it fills us to take care of people we love, right? That doesn't make it any wrong, any any less, lesser of a love that it fills me also, right? It's just the it's just the totality of of what emerges. From, um, from human motivation. And, and so too, um, that when Jew, Jews are involved in social justice work, there's no doubt that our work is about refugees, it's about the homeless, it's about immigrants, it's about racism, and it's about us. It's about cultivating our identity. It's about our survival. Now here's, where, now here's the limits of it, here's the limits. We cannot cultivate young Jewish identity on the backs of the vulnerable. Which is to say, the primary role of Jewish social justice work always has to be to alleviate suffering. Secondarily, there's identity development that happens. But sometimes, if you look at teen programming, sometimes you see programming that is actually really about Jewish identity development, and, and that's done on the backs of the vulnerable. Now, again, it might not be exploitative, right? But the justice work is kind of the vehicle towards the, the the Jewish continuity work. I want to see us do the justice work for its own sake and understand that by doing it for its own sake, it will cultivate positive Jewish identity as well. It will generate goodwill in society as well. But that 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 is real, and it's and it's secondary. And so, um, uh, you know, I am also obsessed with. Um, I guess it's put, uh, you know, um, of, you know, let me bracket that thought because that's a whole other tangent. Um, and, okay, now to get to, to Vicky's second point, which I'm not going to actually say anything about, but just repeat, yes, like what is actually that ripped clothing? What does that actually mean when there's people who can't, uh, can't buy that also? And I think that raises interesting questions about, about inequality. And uh, and where do social trends have limits in regards to uh, uh, how we th- how, how we think about that problem? Okay, but we, we have to come back to Barbara and then and then Cheryl and then I see Eileen. Yeah, Barbara.
5: Okay. Well, I'm I was going back to about your kids leaving Great. and you being. Oh, good, good, good. Okay, so I I have experience in that. I have two wonderful sons who who left and went to college, and just just to let you know. Our relationship now is very different when they were little. And it's fabulous. It's just watching it change and being a fabulous relationship. So I wouldn't worry about anything. (laughs) Just enjoy your journey as it is. And then when it comes to a point where they leave, enjoy that journey as your relationship changed. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, I was really struck by the rabbis who secluded themselves for three days because they couldn't empathize uh with the people and i'm in a situation tomorrow i'm gonna go social distance outside with a friend of mine whose husband has been diagnosed with cancer he went through treatments and it, Mm. it did it didn't work um and so i'm gonna visit and so i was just really struck by that situation yeah
1: wow thank you for that Thank you for that. So, so, so on both points, on the first one, you know, uh, in, a, in a very different way than kids moving out of the house, um, as you know, this is a challenge for us with foster kids, because at any moment the court decides that those kids that you are asked to raise and treat no differently than your biological kids, um, then leave your home and go, um, go to a place where inevitably, at least at the start, their needs are going to be much less met. Than, um, than what you've been providing, and um, and so that that is uh, uh, kind of this other framework of how I think about 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 such a such a case. And, and, and in any case, yeah, So thank you for that around uh, around your experience with your sons. And then to the second point, you know, um, I think uh, it's really powerful what you said, and for us to really think about empathy that way, like how hard will I work to access what this other person is, is, uh, is, is experiencing, to enter their, their world. It doesn't mean we become a moral relativist, that we okay it. But for, let me give an example. I, I am not a part of the camp that critiques lawyers for defending wicked people, right? And I wouldn't just point to this just being a secular right, a right to uh, defense, a right to fair trial, right? right? Everyone is, has the right to fair trial, and there's nothing... Um, unvirtuous of a person who's going to demonstrate the mitigating factors as to why that person should get a lifetime sentence rather than a death penalty or 20 years instead of 40 years right to demonstrate um you know and yet if we view that not just as a as a secular right but as this process of empathy as well like huh Like, can I tap into this person's experience in terms of what happened? And part of that is, of course, in the legal process, demonstrating how one's own trauma, as one example, um, led them to being a perpetrator, right? Yes, it's true. This 19-year-old did this horrific thing, right? And yes, it's true. They should go to prison. But look what happened in the childhood. And look at the trauma here. And was this totally volitional? Was this totally volitional? Um, Or was there a number of other other reasons other than pure volition and malice that led to such an action? And so in general, the work of Musar is to flip judgment to curiosity. We've said this, you know, we talk about this a lot, flip judgment into curiosity. When immediately we want to rush to judge someone and say, huh, how can I be curious about what they're doing as they're almost like studying, but also curious about the self? So yeah. Okay, Cheryl, Cheryl, back to you.
2: Do you think that uh, the uh, emphasis on social justice um, for the youth programming and now is kind of trying to push a little bit away from using the Holocaust in social program in, in in youth programming to say this is who you are, this is what happened to us, and we are teaching you about it so it won't happen again. Uh, I, I mean, there's criticism that we just use the Holocaust to kind of tamp down who, who the, you know, tell the, with these Jewish kids and with these Jewish teenagers. And so I was wondering if social justice maybe a little more emphasis on that now was kind of maybe moving a little bit away from using the Holocaust so much as a tool for uh, uh, cementing Jewish identity.
1: Mm hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah, what a great, what a great question. Um, Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, it's interesting. You know, uh, we don't talk about the Pew study as much as we used to talk about the Pew study, right? And because there's always new studies coming out. But going back to the Pew study, those two were, if I recall, the top two. Um, Those two, um, uh, Holocaust, I believe was number one. Um, I I can pull it up quickly, but I don't want to waste your time. And I think number two was social justice in terms of number, the top two ways that Jews relate to their Jewish identity. Um, And of course, it was generational as well, not purely generational, but but very largely generational.
2: But now the Pew study came came out, you know, some years ago now, and there's a new generation coming up, and who's getting farther and farther away from the time of that. And um, the real true relevance of that to them. And you know, I so that was my question.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's so great. It's so great. And the question of where does the social justice emerge from? Does it emerge from Holocaust memory? Does it emerge from the text and, uh, and halachic obligation or textual obligation, whatever we want to call it? Does it emerge from um, uh, conscience, right? What is the story we tell young Jews as to why they should take a stand? why they should uh, emerge. And I think you're, you're right that there's a growing discomfort with, with rooting that obligation in the show up uh, for various reasons. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and I do think it, uh, that the other part of it is passive versus active, right? We want the teens to be empowered. And the Holocaust is incredibly disempowering, right? You're gonna be a passive recipient of this Trump. And, um, and of course, it can be channeled educationally to be empowering in some ways. But the social justice message is you're a leader. There's injustice all around you. Each of you can make a difference. Each of you can make an impact. You can be an ally. You can advocate. You can do this, you can do that, right? And the assumption is um, that these teens wanna be active. Um, the other assumption is, is that, um, you're primarily going to be white and you should primarily view yourself as privileged and in your privileged identity, there's no room for victimhood. Now, of course that's wrong. You can be privileged and, um, leave room for victimhood. Um, it's not, it's not unidimensional, but that, that oversimplistic narrative that we can't have the two alongside each other because the Holocaust message is the Jews are victims right? And the social justice message is, you're white, you have power and privilege. Oh, so now Jew- Judaism is going to be complicated. How are we going to hold on to both of those? You remember on Twi- Twitter, a few months ago, it was trending. What was the trend? Jewish privilege. It was called Jewish privilege, right? W- which was a playoff white privilege, right? To say that Jews have unique privilege, um, and thus in some ways are kind of guilty or complicit based on that privilege. And of course, there was a whole backlash over there. And so how... How do we hold on to that? Because I think we have to. I think we have to hold on to this reality. Uh, you know, if, uh, you know, um, if you were at Danny Gordis's VBM presentation, actually the Hammer and Family lecture that emerged a few months ago, his main argument for, if you recall, and uh, you might agree or disagree, for Jewish resiliency was we never take our finger off the pulse of our trauma. Right. That. Um, uh, and he's and and thus he is a criti- he is a critic of jewish identity being built on tikkun olam he didn't yeah. say it that way right yeah. but basically if you build it off if you build it off the idea um that we are we're powerful and privileged and safe and now we have to use all that to go fight for injustice outside of all, our corner right the, the, there won't be jewish continuity if you go out and fight for justice but you keep your finger on the pulse of jewish trauma and Jewish continuity. At the same time, um, there can be uh, deeper authenticity and a potential for survival. And so, I think this raises bigger questions than uh, than I can answer around how we hold on to Holocaust education, how we hold on to Jewish social justice education as separate tracks, with some occasional overlap, responsible overlap that takes the conservative and the liberal approach. What's the conservative approach? Never again for the Jews. IDF is going to be strong as hell. What's the liberal approach? Fight genocide wherever you see it, right? Tikkun olam, right? We've got to hold on to both of those, Jewish defense and universalism, okay? How are those two, right? Are we not going to only be in one camp, but allow those to interplay off each other, right? Okay, we've hit our time, friends. So, so fun. Have a wonderful day. Hope to see you tomorrow. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you.